Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We have been going through the book of Acts, and as we concluded the book of Acts, one of the things we noticed in the last half a dozen chapters or so is Paul, among others, would repeatedly have the opportunity to provide a reason for the hope that lies within him. In fact, on your bulletin, on the front of your bulletin, there's that verse from 1 Peter. It says this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, and do it with gentleness and respect. And as we saw Paul share his story, it kind of became a theme for us the last Uh, six or five or six chapters in the book of Acts. And so today I'm sharing my story. That's why there's no pulpit up here, because I don't want to give the illusion that I'm teaching or preaching anything. And that's why I have a chair, because as I see it, this is a good way for us to model what it looks like for you to share your story. Make no bones about it. The reason I'm sharing my story this morning is so that you will find the confidence, the boldness, and the courage to share your story. And as I said when, we, when I was praying, sharing our story is really sharing God's story of his goodness, of his mercy, of his character in our own life. And so, um, and it's kind of fun to sit up here. I haven't done this with all you out. This is, Darren, this is cool, man. We get a couple of these one Sunday. This will be nice. So I'm going to share my story. And if we're staring at my story, we've got to start at the beginning. I was born in India. I am not black. We should probably start there, right? I was born in India. I tell people in Roseburg, uh, I'm Roseburg black because I'm dark and I'm bald, and you would never know that I was born in India, perhaps, because I have no accent. Um, if you uh, are fortunate enough to meet my parents one day, and I hope they come out one day, um, you, you, you can see and hear the accent, and, uh, but both my parents were born in India. I was born in India. Um, I put this map on here so you can kind of see where is India in relationship to the rest of the world. And then when you're looking at India, I was, um, I was born in the second most southern state, in the second most southern state called Andhra Pradesh. Um, my parents moved from India to Southern California when I was 10 months old. So if you, I think I told the story not too long ago of my mom traveling to Southern California. My dad had already come to America with, uh, and so my mom is traveling with 10-month-old me, who was an angel, I'm sure, um, also traveling with my brother Steve and also traveling with my sister uh, Kamala coming to Southern California. And so here's one of the first pictures of us Uh, growing up. This is in our uh, house uh, in Santa Ana, California. This is uh, my dad, obviously, and my mom, and then going from left to right, that's my oldest brother, Sam, on the left. Uh, My second brother, Steve, who passed away recently, that's him, and then my sister, Kamala, and then me. I don't know what I'm looking at, by the way. (laughs) Clearly not the camera. Uh, Maybe the TV was on, because that was the corner the TV was on. I don't know what's happening. But I am clearly distracted, probably by a Laker game that was on maybe in the background. (laughs) Here's another picture of us growing up, a little bit older. 
and I got to give my parents so much credit to come uh, as an immigrant family to Southern California in the 80s. So if you just think from a pop culture point of view, uh, what was happening in the 80s, and you had the advent of MTV, and you had the advent of uh, uh, TV was booming, and Hollywood was booming, and all of the extra extracurricular influences that a parent would normally have to negotiate with their kids, on top of being an immigrant family where you're trying to get used to the culture and the food and the nuances of where you're living now. My parents did an amazing job. Um, so I'm the youngest of four, I'm the baby of the family, as is Libby, by the way. We're both babies of our family. Uh, and for us, it works because we're just spoiled. And um, <laughs> that's how that goes. Uh, this is uh, the last picture of us uh, all together as a family before my brother passed. This was September last year. My niece had just got married, and, uh, and so that's my, that's my family with my brother, my sister-in-law, Josie there, uh, my, my niece, uh, my nephew, who's now engaged. Jazz is not in this picture, but this is uh, the last photo. But I want to take you back to when I had hair. I mean, isn't that amazing? That's pretty good. We're going to leave that up for most of the service. Um, when I was this old, all I wanted to do was to work for the Los Angeles Lakers or to be a pastor. I kid you not, that's really all I ever wanted to do in life. I wanted to preach, I wanted to pastor, or I wanted to work for the Lakers. And when it became a clear reality that working in any capacity for the Lakers would not happen, I really began thinking, my goodness, all I want to do is I want to pastor and I want to preach. Um, we were fortunate, I'm not going to share this portion of the story because I want to respect our time together, but we were fortunate enough to raise, be raised in a Christian home. Um, our, our family has been Christian uh, has had a Christian heritage since 1842 because efforts of missionaries in India. And so we grew up in a Christian home, had Christian grandparents, uh, and, and faith was very important to us. So we grew up in a church that, uh, that had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And of those three services, we chose to go to all three growing up. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Thursday night, we would knock on doors and invite people to church. We would do that. Saturday morning, they would do the same thing. We would do that. I uh, would go to youth group. I was just, I was always in church, and I, I fell in love with the idea of, um, of pastoring, of preaching, and it's really all I ever wanted to do. I remember being, uh, th in the third grade, I went to my first camp, <clears throat> and uh, no, I, mean, I had to have been older than that. Maybe it wasn't. Probably fourth grade probably nine, ten years old, I went to a Christian camp, and because it was, uh, they had all sorts of things you could do. There was um, all, all sorts of extracurriculars, and you could win trophies for different things, and I joined two events. I joined the chess competition, and I joined the preaching competition, and I won the chess competition. Um, that was a little fluky, but I won't tell you the whole story, but I did win that one fair and square, and then in the, in the preaching competition, I got fifth place. There was only seven of us. So I legitimately beat out two other people, but I was like nine years old and I was preaching with other high school kids and I, this is all I wanted to do. So I thought, well, if there's a preaching competition, I want to do that. That's what I wanted to do. And so I did that. Um, I graduated from high school. Um, 
And, and I remember in high school, uh, I went to a public high school, got really good grades, and my whole sole focus was I'm going to Bible college. I know where I'm going to Bible college. I know how that's worked. So I didn't apply to any other school. Didn't apply to any other college. And I just, I just, I knew where I was going to go, and we, uh, I went to Bible college. Um, I got my bachelor's and my master's degree, and um, I remember during the course of college, when I was 20 years old, I had the chance to um, uh, be an intern at a church in Medford, Oregon, Medford, and at their youth group. And so I was 20 years old, and I remember flying into Medford, and as the, uh, if you ever fly into Medford, I don't know how it is now because I haven't flown into Medford for a while, but I remember flying in and just seeing nothing but Douglas fir. And I remember thinking, what is going on? Where am I going? It was a real surreal experience for me. And that summer, of course, in Medford, it's 90 degrees all summer. But it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. And I loved it. I loved the opportunity to be away from Southern California. I loved the opportunity to be in, uh, in, in what is just one of the most beautiful places in America. Um, and a lot of outdoor activities that summer with the, with the teens. And after that summer, I went back home. When, uh, I think I finished my junior and my senior, got my master's. And I remember thinking, I, I just, if, if you'll let me, Lord, I will move back to Oregon. I want to do this. I really, this is what I want to do. And so things worked out for me to do that. I graduated, like I said, uh, with my degrees. Uh, and I moved to Cottage Grove, Oregon, which was a big culture shift for me from Southern California. All of a sudden, I moved to a town of like 7,500 people, and, um, and I got an education real quick on, on rural Oregon um, and just some of the challenges that faced here, but I came to start a church. So I moved to Cottage Grove, um, got married right after college, uh, started a church, and uh, I worked Tuesday through Saturday at a car dealership selling cars. And uh, Kendall in Cottage Grove. I don't think it's Kendall anymore. I think it's something else now. But anyway, right there on Rowe River Road. And I would sell Tuesday through Saturday. And uh, I had never driven a truck before in my life. Um, in my first week on the lot, uh, I remember Rick Schooley was our GM. And he said, okay, so you just got to drive all the vehicles. I was like, cool. Which ones? He's like, all of them. And it was a really uh, important lesson for me. So I learned how to drive a six-speed uh, diesel. I learned all about the Cummins engine. I learned all about these things so I could, you know, sell vehicles effectively. And I did okay. And then Sunday and Monday, I would do the church thing. And we would knock on doors and we would invite people to church. I was there with another couple and, and we were doing that. And um, I, I was not emotionally ready, spiritually ready to start a church, let alone live on my own probably, Right? I was 22, 23 years old, and just, um, I wasn't ready for life. Anybody can identify with that? You had a moment in your life where life just kind of hits you right in the face, and that's what that did. Um, and so we did it for a couple of years, and I, I was bitter. I was angry. Um, I was not in a good place in my heart. Um, all I wanted to do was to preach and to pastor, and here I am in a culture I really didn't understand in Cottage Grove uh, in Oregon. Here I am working full times in a pretty um, 
difficult environment and then trying to start a church also and I just remember feeling robbed I felt like all I wanted to do was do this full-time and I don't have the opportunity to do that and I just felt like a failure I felt out of my element it was not I was not in a good place and so after a couple of years we gave the church uh, to the other couple and 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 my wife at the time and I we just stepped back and stayed out of the ministry and I told myself that my wife and I needed a break and that we were waiting to see what was God's will. Um, during that time, uh, my then wife and I had a lot of heartache. We had relational tension because we didn't really prepare ourselves to be in that position. We had some health concerns that caused two major reactions. One was we found ourselves in a significant amount of debt. And two was, we found ourselves really far from God. Uh, like I said, I was in a spiritual drought. I alienated myself from my family, my faith. Um, that period in my life was so uh, closed off. I had no real friends. Um, I had a very superficial relationship with my parents, with my sister, with my brothers. Um, and I'm not proud of that. Um, and I'm sure it was very confusing for them because up until that point, we were a very close family. And then I left to do this thing in Oregon. And I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like I had to do it on my own. And in that process, I just shut myself off from people. So here I'm in, I'm in this spiritual drought. I'm not doing the church thing anymore. And I'm just alone. Um, I'm mad, bitter, upset. And at first, I, I told myself I was taking a break from ministry, and so we would go to church, and then we would skip church every once in a while, and then it was attending church every once in a while, and soon, we were not going to church at all. Uh, we were just going through the motions as a couple, um, and it was not good. It was not healthy. Um, it was cold. It was it was dark in a lot of ways, spiritually. It just was, that's where we were. Our medical bills had racked up, as did our credit card debt, and we found ourselves quite the financial hole. So I was employed and in charge of a marketing program uh, where I had access and control of online funds. And so I took a portion of those funds and I stole them to pay bills. And when I went back several weeks later to return the funds, it was then that my theft was noticed. And before I knew it, my life, however strung together it was, just completely unraveled. Um, one of the mentors in my life would say, bad things grow in the dark. I mean, you can say amen to that. Yeah. And so... I was just, I was living out that axiom. There's just bad things that were growing in the dark. And I, and I fooled myself into thinking if I make this one mistake and no one finds out, I can recover and I can put the pieces back together in my life. Um, my wife at the time had no clue what I was doing nor the decisions I made. So it was hidden from her. And uh, one day, on a Friday afternoon, uh, the cops came to our home, and she found out. They arrested me and booked, uh, booked me and then released me right away. 
never been in trouble, so they just released me until my court case was going to be figured out. And then, um, and she filed for divorce pretty soon after that. My case was really low priority, and so while waiting for the legal process to run its course, um, again, I, I felt the aloneness then more severely, even though the reality had been I had been alone for a long time. I lost pretty much everything I owned in that process, and I destroyed nearly every relationship that was important to me. So I'm there, I'm lying in a hospital bed at Mercy because I'm recovering from a surgery. One of the things that happened at that point in my life is my immune system was so shot uh, because of the stress, because I wasn't taking care of myself, just because of every factor that I uh, contracted flesh-eating bacteria, which is a wild thing because as I understand it, most people will have flesh-eating bacteria in their system at one point in their life, but you guys, most of us have strong enough immune systems where you just fight it off. And my body, it was a perfect storm where my body contracted it and there was nothing my body could do and it just started to eat away. So I had surgery that I had re removed. So I'm lying in the hospital bed, recovering from that surgery. Uh, my then wife, at some point while I was in the hospital, had dropped off the finalized divorce papers. Everything I owned fit in a five by five storage unit that was about waist high. I didn't even need the whole unit, you know, it was like right there. And I had nowhere to go, and I'm lying in the hospital, and I realize what I have to do. I have to make the phone call to my dad. And he, my family had no idea what was going on in my life. You ever rehearse a phone call before you make it? I just remember sitting there, and I was like, okay, I have to do this. I have to tell him. I had already talked uh, to my brothers and my sister at that point. And I was really hoping one of them would tell my dad. Um, but they didn't, so I called my dad. And he says, uh, hello. And I just lay there in the hospital bed, and I'm just weeping. And I try to unpack everything that had happened. Um in between tears and sobs, and I don't know if I was making much sense. And you know, once you start crying, it's just really hard to stop. Um, and I remember when I, when I, you know, I paused to catch my breath for a moment, my dad just said, do you need me? Because mommy and I will be right there. I was discharged from the hospital within a day or so. My dad flew up the next morning. And uh, he and my mom spent a week up here just loving me. And they listened. And they counseled me. And we read scripture together and we prayed. And they were just here with me for a week. He was still working full time at the time. They flew back to Southern California, and they'll never know what that week meant to me. I have tried over the years to express my gratitude, and I hope I've done a good job to them. And they're watching today. I talked to them Thursday night, and um, I said, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, 
this is the week, and they know, they watch all of our services. They're more faithful to this church than I am, I think, on Sunday morning services. Um, and they knew, and they just encouraged me on Thursday night to share it honestly and to, and to tell the story. They ended up flying back, and I needed a place to stay. And so I went to the mission, Roseburg Rescue Mission, and that's where I stayed for a few months. A couple weeks after I got there, I met John Roy, and John, if you remember, he was uh, our representative earlier this year in February from the mission. John Roy was in charge of the men's program and just kind of the facilities director slash everything else. And I sat in John's office and I kind of told him my story up until that point and he just loved me so well and he, um, he took me in and he really helped me get back on my feet the first couple of steps spiritually anyway. And after a few weeks he said, Daniel, you, you need to go to church. You need to find a church and you need to go. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but y you need to go. And um, I didn't have a car at the time and our church is very strategically located because it was within walking distance of the mission. So I just decided to come one Sunday morning. Um, I remember meeting Jay Jones on that first Sunday I came. And Jay shook my hand and asked me my name. And then, um, and when I came back the next Sunday, Jay remembered my name. And it just tore my heart apart that someone would take the time to remember my name. And I asked him why. I don't know if you remember this conversation, Jay, but I asked him, how did you remember my name? And I hope it's okay I share this story, Jay. He says, well, you know, we just don't get a whole lot of, you know, um, you know, we just, we just don't get a whole lot of, you know, and I said, I know, I know, I noticed the same thing. He remembered my name and I just thought that was unbelievable. Um, and this church, man, you all, you had no reason to love me and you did. And you had no reason to welcome me and you did. And I owe a debt I will never be able to repay. My earliest memories of being at the church is um, y'all were decorating for Christmas. And, um, and so I just came and helped with a couple of guys from the mission. Joanne, do you remember that? We would, and, and you know, I just thought we were going to put garland up. That's literally what they said we'd do. It was a lot more intricate than that, let me tell you. <laughs> and we helped decorate, and I just... It was just so good to be needed and wanted and to serve in some capacity. I remember doing the graffiti, um, and I remember um, our Sunday school class. Boy, I loved it. Uh, Paul and Debbie taught that class, Paul and Debbie Leonard, and they were so good for me. Um, I remember a couple of weeks after coming, I sat down with Pastor David, and David Van Wormer was our pastor at the time, and I sat with him, and I told him my story. I was... I was really, I didn't know this saying that bad things grew in the dark, but I knew the reality of it, right? And I knew that if I ever was going to ever have an honest life again, that I had to just, just, just completely be vulnerable and honest with relationships from that point forward. So I sat down in David's office and I told him my whole story. 
and he just loved me. He walked me through uh, my marriage and some things he, he, he noticed from the way I shared my story, um, helped me do some recovery from my divorce. Um, he helped um, just, he gave me books to read. He just really encouraged me really, really well. Um, so I'm here for a few months, and I'm just part of this church, and my case finally goes before the court. Uh, I plead guilty to the charges in front of me, and I'm sentenced to 10 months. Now, here's the thing. We're going to hit pause for just a second. Growing up, I did not remember learning what forgiveness looked like. And I'll be honest with you, the church I grew up in, they taught it. I know they did because it's a good church. My parents still go to that church, but I never learned it. I never learned what forgiveness looked like. I never learned what restoration looked like. Um, anyway, so, so I really thought that when I had to go serve my 10 months, I didn't have a place to come back to. I really, really believed that. And I just remember thanking God for the few months I had at this church and thought, okay, well, I'll never have this again. And here's the thing. Um, I learned along the way that I had to earn grace and love. And I, equate, I equated obedience with earning love. So the more I obeyed, the more love I got to enjoy. And if I ever disobeyed, well, then I had to sacrifice the love. Does that make sense? I equated, anyway, obedience with earning love. And here's the thing. We cannot earn God's love. And the problem with earning God's love is if we believe somehow we can earn God's love, then it stands to reason that at some point we can unearn his love. But he loves us unconditionally. There's a few notes that you can follow along, just some things I've learned. And one is this. We are not designated children by our worth. We're children by his birth. We're not children by our worth. We're children by our birth. Imagine ooh, someone in your family coming to you and, or imagine this, this is better. Imagine me going up to my dad one day when I'm nine or 10 years old and sitting at the dinner table and saying, dad, guess what? I finally did it. I have now earned the right to be a Malapudi. I've done it. I've met the standard. I've, I've done so-and-so. I have earned the right to be a Malapudi. And he would have laughed me out of the kitchen knowing I'm not a Malapudi because of what I've done to earn that name. I'm a Malapudi by birth. And there's nothing different with our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not designated children by our worth. We're designated children by birth. And so um, that was a really important lesson for me that I didn't have to earn anyone's grace or, or, or Jesus' grace or love in my life, it was given to me. So I go to serve my time, um, fully anticipating that I would have to start over with relationships, start over with just having people in my life. And a strange thing happened. As I, as I began to serve, and about a month or two later, as I served my time, I started getting letters and cards from this church. Uh, Pastor David would write to me and encourage me and challenge me with different things. Uh, Paul and Debbie and the folks from uh, the Sunday school class wrote me and encouraged me, and they all signed a card, I remember. Um, but Miss Jean Hinkle would write me so many times, and she would encourage me and challenge me. Jean was great. She would get the weekly bulletins, 
and stuff them in an envelope. And then she would talk to David and get his printed manuscript from his messages. And she would send those along. And I have every one of those still. And I began thinking, oh, I have a church to go back to. I have a church family that I get to go back to. And I did. I served my time and say a couple of things that are a little bit weird. Prison was the best thing that happened to me. With no caveats. It gave me the opportunity for all of my crap to be visible. It gave me an opportunity to have no more baggage. And it gave me an opportunity to, to really uh, begin new my life. Prison was unbelievable. And the memories of getting those cards and letters and memory, uh, just mementos from this church family, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It was, um, it was unbelievable. So I get out, come back, and I remember journaling and writing some sentences. I remember writing this, Lord, I'll never be in full-time ministry again, and I'm okay with that. Lord, I'll never be a Laker, and I'm okay with that. Lord, I've ruined every relationship I have, and I don't know if I'll be able to restore any of them, and if I do, it'll take a whole lot of work and a whole lot of time, and I'm okay with that. And God slowly started to just rebuild me through relationships. It was then, um, you know, I, uh, so I come back to the church. Well, we'll talk about it in a second. Anyway, uh, it was shortly after that that I met Garrison. And Garrison would become my best friend. I miss him. He lives in Australia now. He has an accent. It's really weird. Uh, some of you might remember Garrison. He came a few times, and um, I loved him. I, I still love him. He was so good for me. Uh, he would come to church with me here sometimes, but... Um, and this, I tell people all the time, man, our church is not going to be for you, chances are, because there's a lot of churches. Um, but if it is for you, you need to dive all in and you need to go all in. But our church is not for everyone. It wasn't for Garrison. He would come a few times when we were doing something special. Um, but he wanted to find a church that would fit him. And so we would go and we would visit these different churches together. And, um, and we found a church that offered a Saturday night service and Garrison just loved it. He thought it was great because that meant he could sleep in on Sunday. And so he would go to church on Saturday night, and I would go with him, and, and I just, we became our accountability partner with one another. So I'd go to church with him Saturday night, and I'd come to church here on Sunday, um, and he loved it. And one Saturday night after church, um, one of the worship team members from that church came down and just started talking to Garrison and I, and they invited to him and I to what was uh, his, the guy's small group. And I remember going home that night with Garrison. I remember telling him, bro, you got to go to this small group. This is going to be the best thing that happens in your life. You are going to meet a group of people that love you, that care for you, and you need good friends. And this is a great, and I said, and he was really reluctant. And I said, fine, I will go with you to this small group because it's going to change your life. And I, I want to make sure you have someone to go with. So I will go with you. Uh, so the guy who invited us was Jeremy Chappell. Jeremy's one of my best friends today, and Jeremy invited us to a small group. 
So we would go and um, God used that small group to gift me the very best friends of my life right now. And it was really interesting because I said it was for Garrison, but God knew it was for me. Uh, Kenny and Molly are here and they were in that small group. And the relationships formed in that small group really changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and again, I was trying to do everything uh, the opposite of what I had lived before. Uh, um, anybody remember an episode of Seinfeld where George just does the opposite because his life is a failure? And he says, fine, I'm just going to do the opposite from now on forward. There was kind of a little bit of that with me where I was like, well, I lived this hidden life for so long where I didn't have friends. I didn't have anyone I could trust. So I'm going to start getting friends and I'm going to start finding people. And in that way, God just started bringing people in my life that would end up supporting me. Um, yeah. So for me, in my experience, when God restores, he does so through relationships. Make no mistake, in your life, if your life is broken right now, as God restores you, he will do so through relationships. He will not do it in a vacuum. He will not do it with you uh, because you're uh, on your own, because you're trying so hard. He will do so because you have invited people into your life to support you, to love you, to cheer you on. Life is all about relationships. And apart from relationships, this life becomes really mundane and really meaningless. And we start living in this vacuum of darkness and solitude and really some, again, we come back to it, that's where bad things start to grow is when you're in the dark, when you're all by yourself. Um, but this was the point in my life where God started bringing relationships to me, new ones, but also restoring relationships. So when I went to prison, it was for 10 months, uh, when I got out, um, it, was, it was a good six months, I believe, um, after serving that time that my mom and I talked to each other. And it wasn't her fault. She just didn't know what to say. And so I would call home and I would talk to my dad which was really good for my dad and I because my dad and I's relationship got really close and it hadn't been. And so, and my mom was not angry. She was not um, trying to be mean. She was not trying to get even. She was just trying to heal. And I disappointed a lot of people in my life and hurt a lot of people with my decisions. And as God restored parts of my life, it was evident he was going to do so through relationships. It wasn't long after that, though, uh, that God started to heal the relationship between me and my parents, me and my family. This is one of my favorite pictures from that time in my life. Um, this is mm, maybe a year after um, I was out of prison. I went home for uh, Emmett's graduation, my nephew's graduation. And it was just so nice to have a relationship with my parents that was honest, where I didn't have to hide anything and that they could see every part of my life. So relationships started forming in my life, and all of a sudden, uh, responsibilities started coming in my life. 
And this is kind of a life lesson for me. I don't know it's for everyone, but it is for me that, that, that God brought res, uh, relationships in my life before he would give me responsibility. It was really true. Um, and so David, Pastor David one day asked me if I wanted to play the guitar for worship. He had never heard me play the guitar. It was not good. It was not. It was bad. Uh, I remember asking, are you sure you want me to be on stage playing poorly? Like, please don't mic me up. Don't like it was bad. I remember uh, one of our, the first Sundays I was playing the guitar up here. We sang All Hail the Power, which is a beautiful hymn. It's an A flat. I didn't quite understand how to use a capo then, and I was trying to play flats with my guitar. It was horrible. It was bad. Um, I remember a few months after that that our, our Sunday school teacher, Paul Leonard, was going to be gone for two weeks, and Paul pulled me aside one Sunday and said, Daniel, do you want to teach the class for two weeks? And I remember saying, are you sure? Like, I wasn't on vacation. Like, I was gone for a long time. And he said, no, we're good. We're with you. We love you. And he had never heard me teach. I really don't understand that from Paul. Uh, what led him to ask him, but he asked me. So I said yes before he could change his mind. I taught for a couple of Sundays. Uh, John Roy at the mission would let me preach at the mission whenever there was a need. Um, fast forward a little bit of time. Uh, pastor David retires from this pastorate. And Darren took the senior pastor responsibilities during that transition time. And um, I know we know how grateful we are for Darren. We need to express that regularly. Darren was such a, um, he, he's been our glue through quite a bit of difficult transitions in our church. And uh, Darren, I love you. And I will never be able to express the gratitude for the gift that you have given to our church of your faithfulness. That summer, uh, Darren asked me, um, so let me set the stage. I'm over here on the piano. It's before worship, and I'm just, I'm just poking a few keys on the uh, piano, just messing around, and D Darren walks in, and he comes around right here, and he says, hey, um, do you want to preach in a few Sundays? And I said yes before he could change his mind. I, I learned my lesson with Paul. I'm not going to ask him if you know. I'm just, I just said yes real quick. And I said, why? And uh, Kyle was graduating, and it was like a really busy weekend for Darren. And Darren uh, pre presumably had asked the elders. I don't know if he did. Um, presumably had asked the elders. They said, okay, so I got to preach. And um, I remember thinking, I get to preach one more time. And I just let it rip, man. I just thought, if you're going to hear me once and that's it, it's going to be everything I got. So I, let, I just let my heart uh, preach it. Um, that was awesome. Uh, that summer, it led me to another time being able to preach. And I think I preached three or four times that summer. Um, and at the end of that summer, um, Darren and I were having lunch at Los Dos here in Roseburg. And uh, he said that the elders uh, and the pulpit search committee asked if I'd be willing to think about the process of applying for pastor here. And I remember thinking to myself, what cruel joke is the universe playing on me now? Like, 
this is a dream that I had given up. This is a, something I had let go of. I had made peace with where I was in life. I had, I had really loved my life at that point. It was, and I remember thinking, are you sure? I didn't say this out loud, but I remember thinking, are you sure you want a single divorced guy who's made some serious mistakes in his life? And by the way, I'm not white. Is that okay? I remember thinking that. Um, shortly after that, Ron Sturtz and I had coffee together. Uh, I miss Ron and Daphne. Um, had coffee with Ron, and, um, and we talked through, obviously, just the whole process. And we ended up spending some time in prayer to see if this is what was going to happen next. And the elders had peace about it. I had peace about it. So we begin the process of interviewing and vetting and doing the background search um, and, and just going through that process. Well, I was still going to this small group that I told Garrison that he really needed. And what the small group ended up providing me was the safe place to process this opportunity at this church. Um, and they loved me and prayed for me through that process. Um, the elders and I met many, many times to discuss my statement of faith, um, what happened in my marriage, um, the crime, and the decisions that led up to that, and where I was now. Um, theologically, we discussed a lot of things because I grew up in a little bit of a different the theological tradition, and so we made peace with that. Um, and then November of that year, my, my candidacy was brought before the church family, and I don't know if you all remember that, um, how that goes, uh, I got to preach a sermon, and then afterwards, we all had lunch downstairs, and they said, and they get to ask you whatever questions they want, and let me tell you, y'all did, <laughs> and here's the thing, it was really, really good, it was important that you understood my background, it was important that you understood that I was married and I'm not now, it was important that you understood that what led to these really horrible decisions and how I felt like God had redeemed my life from that. Uh, so that was November. Uh, the church family, uh, it was brought up to the actual vote, uh, I think November 8th, if I remember right. Um, and, um, and it was an overwhelming, something like 93 to 6 vote for me to be there, your pastor. And I began pastor uh, on December 1st, 2015. Oh, I have a picture, sorry. Hold on. Oh, Daniel. If you were a part of this church in December of 2015, would you do me a favor of standing for just a moment? I owe you a debt. I love you. And I say thank you for allowing me the privilege of serving as your pastor. We love you. Thank you. Oof. So if you're keeping up with the story, I'm still single. I pastored for a couple of years as a single pastor. 
Um, and honestly, I was completely okay with that. I really was. I, um, I had given up that part of my life. I really felt like I would be a single pastor here at this church for as long as you guys would allow me to. And in the early spring of 2015, I was praying uh, for myself, and I, I just got this real peace from God that I was going to have a family again. And I remember thinking, this is weird. Don't know how this is going to turn out. Uh, again, I was very content. I was preaching every weekend. I loved it. Surely I did not need a relationship. Um, I was wrong, obviously. But I began making a list of what it might look like for me to have someone in my life. And I remember thinking, well, I need someone who's mature in their faith, someone who has a career, someone who has traveled internationally, because I'm not from America. I was born in India. Uh, someone who loved curry would have been awesome. <laughs> someone who grew up in a similar faith tradition as me. Uh, someone who moved here from outside of Oregon like I did. And I really, this is the weirdest one, I really felt like it was someone I already knew. And I could not make sense of that because that was just weird to me. And so I remember it was, uh, I don't remember what day of the week, but I remember I was in my apartment and I was just looking through my contacts and uh, Libby's name came up. This is one of our first pictures. I couldn't find our first picture, but this is one of our first picture. Libby's name came up and um, she likes to, when she tells the story, she likes to say her maiden name was Couture, so she was on top of the list on the contacts. So be it. Remember the small group that I was in, that I'm going to? Libby's in the small group. And uh, we were friends, but again, having a girlfriend, much less a wife, was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, but God began working in my heart. I saw Libby's name that afternoon, and I remember texting her before I could change my mind for a date. And I, we went on a date on May 5th. 2017. A few uh, things about this date. Number one, she claimed she didn't know it was a date. I think I made it pretty clear. <laughs> she claimed she doesn't know it was a date. During our first date that she didn't apparently know it was a date, she told me that she loved her last name so much she would not change it if and when she got married. <laughs> On our first date. And I remember thinking, this is awful, awfully presumptuous. <laughs> I also remember thinking, I mean, Couture is a pretty great name, right? But Malaputi, come on. Like, that's a pretty great name, too. We didn't go out again, again. We didn't go out again for like two or three weeks. And I remember coming home from that first date thinking, I have two options. We can never go out another date again. Or we are likely going to get married. And that was really, I knew from the first date. Spoiler alert, we got married. <laughs> we'll celebrate five years in a couple of weeks. And I honestly cannot remember pastoring before Libby was in my life. I, I, it's very difficult for me to remember the rhythms of my days and my rhythms of my week before Libby. Um, and we have been so blessed by one another's family, I think, has been one of the biggest answers of prayer in our life. Um, this is one of my favorite photos from our wedding. And this is our family. Uh, she has two older brothers. Uh, Sam was just here with Veronica and the kids, and they led worship for us on uh, whenever that Sunday was. It was beautiful. 
just beautiful. Um, and they've been so good to me to have two other brothers and another sister. Uh, and uh, my family just loves Libby. Um, a couple of years on my birth, a couple of years ago on my birthday, my mom called me, um, and it was like first thing in the morning at like 7:30. It was my birthday, okay? And she says, "Happy birthday, Danny! Thanks, mom. Where's Libby?" <laughs> I said, "No, no, it's my birthday. You're talking to me." <laughs> they love Libby. Um, we've really been blessed by one another's parents. This is from our wedding. Uh, there's a portion of the service where uh, Pastor Mike uh, Kildall just honored our parents um, and what they have breathed into our lives. And um, I am just so grateful for one another's parents, for one another's family. It's, uh, it's beautiful. It sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? For me, it does. I will say this, though. It's important to know that when God shows up in your life, it doesn't mean that everyone will live happily ever after. It was the summer of 2020 that Libby and I found out that we would likely never be able to have children of our own. And that stinks. And it continues to stink. We've been frustrated. We've been angry. We've been somber. We've been emotional about it. We've both felt like it just wasn't fair. Uh, we saw a counselor soon after that uh, and someone who could help us start to allow our minds to embrace this newfound reality in our life. It was through that period of time that we decided to pursue fostering and fostering kiddos. And so we, had, we have had four little ones in our home during that season um, one of whom left a permanent imprint on our lives. This is the day that we picked up our sweet pea from uh, the hospital in Portland. Uh, this is me with her that first week. Uh, she came to church often, and normally this is what she would do. She did not like my messages. <laughs> she would come to worship practice with us and just made herself at home. She's amazing. We had her for nine months, and um, she was amazing. She was a gift to us. And saying goodbye to her last April was the hardest thing we've done as a couple. It was one of the last pictures we took uh, the night before we said goodbye to her. She is doing awesome, by the way. She's being raised by her grandmother. She's doing great. Her grandmother is a rock star, uh, raising both her and her sister, uh, who's a couple of years older. And uh, by the way, if you're a grandparent raising your uh, grandkids, you are rock stars in the highest order. It's just amazing. And so you might ask, what's it like to be healed from this kind of disappointment and the reality of infertility and not being able to have a family? And I can tell you this, we'll let you know when we're healed from that. Because every day, it's on my mind. And in many ways, Libby and I are still waiting for God's healing in that part of our life. I want to close with this thought. God's specialty 
is to restore broken people and make them beautiful stories of his redemption. This is my story. What's yours? What's your story? This Wednesday, if you subscribe to our emails, you're going to get the first prompt in helping you write your story. And the Wednesday after that, you're going to get another one. And the Wednesday after that, you're going to get another one. For three weeks in a row, you're going to get a prompt to help you write your story. And this is so important to me to share my story because God is just awesome. He has restored so many things in my life, but also because my story is just a small representation of what God has done through you and your story. And so I'm challenging you now to think about what it looks like for you to share your story. You will not have to do so on a Sunday morning, and you will not have to do so for the length of time I've done it. But I'm telling you, every one of you has a story. And every time you tell your story on how you became a follower of Jesus Christ and why you follow him, you give honor and glory to God. And your story, regardless of how spectacular or ordinary you think it is, is a story about God's character, his love, his mercy, his goodness in your life. And it's your eyewitness account of how God rescued you. This is why Acts is so mind-blowing. The responsibility for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be spread in our community lies within you sharing your story. Acts 1.8 says, you will be witnesses. That means you get to give the eyewitness account of what God has done in your life. And you say, man, I could never tell your story, Daniel. Good, it's not yours. It's mine. But guess what? You have your story. So if you do not currently get our emails, I need you to write your email down on a Connect card. I need you to turn it in. It doesn't matter if you go to our church or not. You're going to get some helpful things over the next few weeks for you to put pen to paper to articulate how God has changed your life. Steve Jobs said the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. And you know how our community will be reached for the gospel of Jesus Christ? It may not be through a Sunday morning service, but it will be through you sharing your story. It may not be because uh, we have, um, we have the, the, the best ability to house programming that brings people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but it will be because you share your story. So this is my story. What's yours? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at rosebergfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.